Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Good morning, everyone. I figured I'd start the recording this morning, uh, Saturday morning here in Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm about to present my poster at the CR or SRCLD conference. And I uh, woke up early just to attend the Saturday market right by Capitol State uh, Square, and I must say it is absolutely beautiful. There is so much going on, so many vendors, so many musicians, as you can hear in the background. It is truly a wonderful experience. If you've never been to SRCLD, there is so much more um, than just the conference. The conference is fabulous, as you have heard, but there is so much more to see here um, in Madison. Last night, uh, Michelle and I did the terrace, which was also beautiful. So get out here next year if, you, uh, if you've never been. Okay, so we just had that very interesting talk by, uh, well, Susan Ellis Weismer started off, but she just kind of introduced the topic, and then we heard from Rhea Paul and then Mabel Rice. Again, the title was Child Language Disorder, an Open Conversation About Identification and Terminology. So I'm sitting here outside at the lovely deluxe restaurant, just had some amazing food, and again, I've got Dr. Uh, Michelle Miner Carrivo with me, and I also have uh, Dr. Tiffany Hogan, who is joining us from the C here see here speak I know this I've said it like five times podcast and we haven't planned anything we're just going to have a conversation about how we thought uh, the talk went and our own opinion and, and whatnot so maybe I'll just start by giving a little introduction so um, Susan did start by saying that you know th there's the, the goal of this talk was not to form any recommendations to confirm or to counter the catalyze um, consortia uh, it's more just to to have a discussion an open discussion about it uh, now, she does say that DLD is a descriptive term that is easily understood across contexts. Um, there's issues, of course, of terminology and identification criteria. Um, so, you know, it's not just a swapping out of SLI for DLD. Uh, there is that whole nonverbal cognitive IQ question that we they did discuss today. So, um, she was saying that she's kind of on the fence. Um, but she said that when she can't get off the fence, it's because of rigor and reproducibility. And so again, reproducing research, we need to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges. And another thing that I thought that was really interesting is that we've been identifying children who have language difficulties for a pretty long time. So it dates back to 1825 by Gal. And they were the first to describe children with poor speech and differentiate them from intellectual disabled, intellectually disabled. So this has been going on for quite some time. So maybe um, I'll let the others uh, tune in here on how they felt the talk went. Well, I think that it was uh, interesting to see the debate over the terminology uh, only because uh, I think that what came out of that is that it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, we've been having uh, changes in terminology when, um, I guess, the the, the, no the body of knowledge increases. So we've had that with autism spectrum disorder. Someone was talking about how even with resiliency, they're, they're, they're needing to 
more there's a, a, an increased need to specify which characteristics you know they would fall under um, and very simple terms like uh, I was telling Chantal um, I've done a study on dictations and in French one of the words in there is Indian which is Indian and so I'm from Ontario Canada and we've, we're shying away from using that term not because it's it has in and of itself uh, any kind of um, negative connotation but because they've they've gone on and, and, and used another term but when you uh, when you depending on where you are in the world, that will have a different meaning. So clearly that dictation was, was made in France. They're not, taught, they're not referring to us, but the impression would be that the kids were reluctant to write that word because in our, in our situation, uh, it was more pejorative. So the same could be, be true, said about SLI, DLD, depending on, uh, as Chantal said, which side of the fence you're on. And I went in there thinking I'd have a clearer view of which term to use. And I, it's actually the opposite. So, um, but I will, there's a caveat here. My research doesn't center on DLD. I usually have a lot of, a lot more normative samples in my studies. So of course I follow whatever the college will tell me to follow in terms of criteria and inclusion and whatnot. So I'm usually very uh, uh, aware of what they are recommending. But uh, I, it's nice to see the debate going on, but I, I don't necessarily have more answers today than I had when I went in. So uh, at the end, I grabbed Rhea Paul and I kind of gave her a bit of a disclaimer. I was a bit starstruck and she said, well, I think that's a good thing if you're, you know, it's opened your mind and you haven't necessarily discounted one or the other. Yeah, that's very, that's, yeah it was a really interesting debate. So many cool points that came out. I think... For me, it just really highlights the gaping hole between research and practice, too, though, because this is something, you know, we're sitting in a room um, talking about these nuances. And in practice, you know, speech language pathologists in the U.S. don't give nonverbal IQ tests. Um, I think that even just understanding, you know, uh, developmental language disorder, what it is, SLI, what it is, uh, in relation to the typical diagnoses that are given, which, as Sean Redmond pointed out, diagnoses aren't even given, right? It's just that you say they don't have function, you know, they're not functioning appropriately or not meeting what they should functionally um, in academic achievement. And so, you know, those, those are the children who receive the services, and they have kind of a broad term, you know, here, a broad diagnosis of uh, speech and language impairment, and we've done some work showing that early on, that's the diagnosis they receive, diagnosis like qualification mm -hmm. that they receive in the schools, but then later on, uh, those children receive a, typically receive a qualification as specific learning disabilities. So the child really hasn't changed, but the way they qualify changes. So I think that there is a real gap here in what's happening, and uh, in the advocacy work I've done, I've just tried to focus more on getting, uh, you know, some more attention in the school systems and in the public awareness about what language impairment is. And I, I, um, you know, I've done some work showing that uh, only about 50 to 70 percent of these kids are even diagnosed or even, not even diagnosed, but they're not even on the radar um, at schools. So they're really hidden and they're moving forward and they typically don't have any type of educational, kind of what is, qualifies as educational difficulties till they can't read and comprehend what they read. And that's too late. So I think getting an awareness about this, we have a paper in JSLHR that just came out looking at early screening for language. And so there's a part of me that is, um, thinks we're maybe a bit too caught up in the details. Uh, I think maybe next year it'd be great to have a discussion about advocacy and what that looks like. I really liked Stacy Betts' point that she made about last year she had a poster uh, where she described, gave a diagnosis to parents of SLI versus DLD versus a made-up diagnosis, and they were all confusing. They all didn't make sense, and thinking more about, regardless of what we call this, how do we, you know, how do we really um, help educate the public? So. 
Right. I like how Rhea Paul jokingly suggested using neurolinguistosis, you know? <laughs> Call it what you want. Exactly. And I, I believe it was Sean Redmond that his slide showed how, you know, DLD can be the slogan that everybody knows and we're just advocating for what it is and what it means for a child to have language difficulties. And then when we're researching it scientifically, then we can use SLI because as researchers, we know what we mean by SLI, the criteria, uh, you know, to, to be considered to have, to have SLI. But really, at the end of the day, we need to, um, I mean, they did focus on, we need to increase awareness to increase funding for the work that we do, which in the end, we want to better help these kids, better provide services for these kids. So let's not lose sight of the end goal here, I think, is the important thing. Exactly. And just on our way to lunch, we were talking about how in practice... And I, I'm very careful about what I'm about to say. I'm, I don't mean to say that the term does not matter. What I mean to say is it doesn't change my, my treatment. So as long as I've been able to identify the areas of weakness, and very often it's in grade four or five that they start really coming out because they haven't really been picked up when they were younger, but the needs are different and the the the, um, the requirements for them to be able to demonstrate their learning are, are different. Uh, but bottom line is I have a lot of parents who are reluctant to have anything resembling any kind of a label, regardless of what it is, in an IEP. And I always tell them, this is just for access to services. So you're better off to call it whatever the people at the school board want you to call it, if it's going to mean increased services. But, you know, I, I really stress the recommendations and how that part is very easily translatable into um, some goals that are treatable within the school setting. And I do a lot of consulting with the teachers because they're the ones who are going to be doing the implementing. So, um, you know, though the, I think that all of us, all uh, SLPs are, we're terminology driven and we would like one of those uh, low semantic diversity words so that as soon as you hear it, you recognize it and you know exactly it forms a picture in your head. But for research purposes, does that really matter? And, you know, maybe it's just a, we're doing a circumlocution of, of whatever already exists. I think one of the conclusions that I believe that um, Mabel was trying to make is that she, I think what she was arguing and, and some of the people that spoke, they were arguing that DLD would be an umbrella term and that SLI would be those children who had a nonverbal IQ 85 and above. But I think one point I want to highlight from my own work too is that that we don't always use 85 as a cut point for SLI. A lot of studies use 70. So they just say, like, no intellectual disability. So I think that the audience might walk away thinking, okay, SLI 85 and above, that's what studies of SLI have used. But that's not true. And there's actually been a longstanding debate about this nonverbal IQ. And many have asked the question, are you really that different as a child if your nonverbal IQ is 83 versus 86? It's an arbitrary cut point. And so I think that, you know, this idea of having SLI as a subtype Type of DLD um, may be what happens within research, but I do think we have to ask the deeper question of, do we need that subtype? I mean, that's really where we have to move forward. Do we need the subtype? And so much work is showing we don't need the subtype. And I do think that there was a, such a valid point that DLD does not equal SLI. And so that's another kind of critical point. So I don't, I don't know. I think that there was a lot of uh, trying to get on the same page a bit with the subtyping, but I don't know that that's how it's going to play out ultimately when you look at the actual data. Yeah, I agree. I've used 70 as well. And that was my mentor, uh, Dr. Alan Theratier. She uses 70 as well. So now I was kind of scratching my head too, thinking, what? I, I, like you said, Michelle, I, I left that talk feeling a little bit more confused than I did when I first went in. But overall, it was interesting to hear their arguments and the different um, point of views. And I think that she did say, um, Mabel Rice did say, we also need to really define these kids in our research. 
you know, if, if I use 70, then I have to, to make sure that that's well indicated. And, and that's just the same for any research, any population that we're studying. Anything else to add, maybe briefly? I think that uh, one of the key take-home uh, messages was that the one of the bigger issues, research-wise, would be that if we changed that term or if we swapped it out, that we wouldn't be able to find any re any past research uh, if we were searching the databases. But I'm pretty sure that with those two, and if I was going to perform research, I would cover all my bases and I would I would double check and I would make sure that they're um, you know that. I would use both in the search, the search engines. And moving forward, um, would it be you know, best practice to add both, even though you may decide to just study SLI, or you may be more, more all-encompassing like the, the DLT? But could we not maybe just all agree that we'll use both in the key term, the, in the, um, the keywords just so that they're found? And of course, you always read the, ab the abstract, and if it's not close enough to what you're doing, you know that you move on. That's it. And I'll just go ahead and highlight that we have a public awareness campaign going on now. We have a website, uh, dldandme.org. Sean Redman is one of the um, founding members, as well as Carla McGregor and Lisa Archibald and Amanda Van Horn, Jacob Michelson. And on that website, we do talk a bit about this debate. We have several parent-friendly uh, write-ups, and one of them is talking about the different terminology used, not only just this debate of SLI-DLD, but what's used clinically, what's used in research, what's used for the DSM, and they're all different. So I think that's our task here is to try to advocate. We have had Twitter chats once a month, and our last one had 425,000 impressions, and we had 23 countries. So this is something that people are getting on board with. I don't know. Um, I know very little you know, a pushback on the DLD except for this uh, group led by Mabel. And I do think it's an important point to think about specifying subjects, but I also think that as we move forward with advocacy, there is room for um, a shared mission and that we can all get together regardless DLD, SLI, we all get together and we really make this a household name. And coming from dyslexia, that is a household name. There's a lot of misinformation, but there's household name. And I loved the taxi driver yes. that, you know, Dorothy Bishop said that she gets in taxis in the UK. They're chatty and they'll say, what do you study? And she'll say, oh, I study autism. They're like, oh, okay, I get that. And, you know, my cousin has that. Uh, you know, I study dyslexia. Oh, yeah, I, I know someone who has that. I study specific language impairment. What's that? Yeah. And so I think that we have to change that what's that approach, uh, regardless of this debate. Yeah, that's how I started my podcast, really. The whole reason behind this is I don't use the taxi analogy. I use the airplane analogy. So the same thing. I'm a speech-language pathologist. A what? I study language. What's language? And try to explain language in a nutshell. It's very difficult. Well, thank you very much to both of you. Um, I think dldandme.org is a fantastic website. And those Twitter chats are the last Wednesday of every month. I missed the last one. I'm, I'm glad to hear it was such a success. But uh, if you want to chime in, um, feel free to do so, even if you're just reading. And you don't need to, you don't need to actually tweet. But they're, they're a great um, way to get informed. And there's typically four questions during the hour. Um, and you've got people from all over the world tweeting at the same time. So it's a great initiative. So thank you so much. And I hope that this gave you a quick glance at what the discussion was all about. Come to SRCLD next year because there were some little hints of perhaps a discussion will continue next, next year with a bit of a, a twist. But I, I look forward to finding out what that will be. So thanks so much. Thank You're you. Thank thanks you. for having me. I really appreciate it. 
and uh, take a listen to the See, Hear, Speak podcast, Tiffany Hogan's podcast. This uh, episode will be cross-posted there, but uh, please listen to all of her other fantastic episodes to learn more about all that we have to offer as speech-language pathologists, communication, language and all, a speech and all of that. Take care, everyone. Okay, so here I am, uh, last little bit of energy here to summarize the final submitted oral presentations for day three. Uh, the theme of these last three presentations were input was input and language environment. And I must admit, I did miss the beginning of the very first talk because I was finishing up with the summary of the SLI DLD um, talk. So I did catch enough, though, to, to be able to give a sense of what it was about, and I do have the, the abstract in front of me. So this was titled, The Role of Peer Input on Language Development in an Inclusive Oral Language Classroom. And it was by Lynn Perry and collaborators from the University of Miami. So this really caught my attention. So it was about uh, children who have hearing loss, who attend intervention schools, aimed at improving their oral language. But there's very little research investigating the role of peers on language outcomes in these programs. So, you know, we've heard a lot about what is the role of uh, the early childhood educators or teachers or parents on children's oral language, but we don't know a whole lot about peer-to-peer. -peer. So does it matter how peers talk to one another and does that have an influence on how a child develops their language abilities but to add to that the children that were studied in this particular research um, had hearing impairment and so we did they did have typical hearing kids and then he, kids who um, were hearing impaired and who had had I'm trying to see here I want to make sure I'm, I'm pretty sure that I caught from the talk that they had cochlear implants um, or, or it may have been a mixture of both. So we'd have to check their work to, to be sure. So they used LENA recorders. So for those who may not know, LENA stands for Language Environment Analysis. And they it's basically a talk pedometer. So it measures the amount of talking that you do. And it also um, does some automated analysis of vocalizations, which is very, very useful in research when we're collecting really large data samples for uh, spontaneous language samples. So for these kids who were hearing impaired, what they discovered is that the number of peer vocalizations was a good predictor of vocalizations of these kids who are hearing impaired more than their own past vocalizations or their hearing status. So there was a you know real um, emphasis on the importance of the peer vocalizations on the children who had hearing impairment on their vocalizations later on. So then they went on to ask, well, okay, does peer input predict developmental outcome, so language outcome? So they used the preschool language scale 5, the PLS 5, and again, they found that children who heard more vocalizations from their peers ended up with higher scores on the receptive um, subtests or, or items and the expressive items of the PLS-5. So this really motivates having typically developing kids with normal hearing interact with kids who have cochlear implants in, in school. So here I, I'm confirming that some of the kids did have cochlear implants. Um, and, and also what was interesting is that 
they did compare these kids with hearing impairment with kids who are typically developing without hearing impairment, and they discovered that the kids without hearing impairment also benefited from peer um, vocalizations as well in terms of their own vocalizations and their scores on the PLS-5. What was also of interest is that these researchers not only used the Lena, but they also used the UbiSense technology. So the UbiSense, this was, was new to me. I admit that I this is not uh, something that I am familiar with. I was familiar with the Lena, of course, but not the UbiSense. It is an indoor positioning and mapping system that relies on ultra-wideband radio and sophisticated mapping software to provide second-by-second estimates of locations for multiple children who are wearing small location tags, you know, in, in the preschool environment, let's say. So some of the issues when we're using the Lena is that we're never sure if we're really measuring, so is child A talking to child B or are we capturing those conversations or is there, you know, child C in there? Who's talking to who? But the UbiSense does allow to measure who's talking to who and what kind of um, vocalizations do we really want to capture here? So I thought that that was really, really cool. So the second study, so these three were actually called the, the Florida study. So the second one was titled Quanto Mas Mejor, a technology-based intervention for families with young dual language learners in low-income homes by Mary Wofford uh, from Florida State University. And I thought that this was another very interesting one. You know how they say there's an app for that? Well, um, they, although they did use the Lena, they also used an app. Um, so it's called uh, uh, Starling by Versamy, and it, they were saying it's about $150 to own one. And it works very much like any pedometer app that you would download on your a smartphone or iPad, and it'll count the number of words. Now, it's not going to you know, transcribe or, or analyze the words, but it'll count the words in several different languages. I don't know if it's every language. I, I would need to do more research about it. So their um, goal was to determine, is there a way that we can encourage parents from low socioeconomic status or low income backgrounds to try to have a, a richer vocabulary in the home, to, to you know, engage with their children, to use more diverse words, increase the number of words that they're using. And so the thought was that, well, just like a pedometer is used to encourage us to walk more, I mean, it's not going to make us walk more. <laughs> That's something that we got to do on our own. But by using this um, device, so Starling, again, it's something that they wear, like a little pin, but then it... Um, just like the Fitbit you would wear around your wrist, um, and then you've got it capturing data on your smart device. So it would that be sufficient to, enough to encourage parents to increase their output so that children would get more of that um, vocal input? So the you know the kids wore this, and then. Um, they did have visual displays to try to encourage parents to talk more at the end of every day, just like our, our Fitbit and pedometers work. And so they did a multiple baseline design to see if, you know, after a while they would increase the number of utterances or a number of words that they used. And basically the results showed that it was, it was very variable. And I think Heilman uh, alluded to that in the very first talk of the SRCLD uh, conference that when we're working with 
language sample analysis. It's like an organized chaos. There's a lot of variability. So they had different families and they found that it really varied from one family to another, but they were still able to make some pretty important conclusions from all of this data. So technically, um, <clears throat> what it showed was that in the end, the Starling was really good at promoting awareness of adult word counts delivered to these kids, to these. Oh, and I didn't mention that these kids were dual language learners. So um, hence the title. So uh, Spanish, English. Um, but, you know, when we compared the actual intervention measurements with the baseline, there was a limited effect of the Starling. But, you know, perhaps there there wasn't. Um, the, inte the intervention wasn't intensive enough, it wasn't long enough to really change the adult word counts with this group of participants. You know, it takes a long time to change a habit. Some people say it takes 65 consecutive days to really uh, adopt a new routine, a new habit. Um, and I believe that this study, it was only three weeks. So maybe we need a little bit more time, a little bit more um, of an intensive intervention. But nonetheless, um, it's showing some promising results for increasing awareness of the importance of adult word count for um, uh, young dual language learners in low-income homes. And the very last... Um, submitted oral presentation of the SRCLD conference from the Florida, uh, from Florida State was uh, bursting into tears, differences in the temporal structure of infant's cry and speech-like vocalizations in an early intervention classroom. So this was with preschoolers and this was by uh, Stephanie Custodi and collaborators from the University of Miami. And so I really learned a lot with this. I, I had never really heard of this terminology. So they studied um, temporal structure of infants cry and speech-like vocalization. So these were one-year-old kids who were in an early intervention classroom at the age of, of one. Um, so, you know, kind of a preschool. And they measured the, uh, essentially... The frequency or the rate of vocalizations, the duration of vocalizations, and the temporal distribution of vocalizations. And here, when I say vocalizations, um, they also looked at um, cry. So cry and speech-like vocalizations. And then, you know, they, they had different ways of, of classifying what they found. And, and one of the things that came back over and over was this burstiness. And someone at the end asked, well, what, what exactly do you mean by burstiness? Because what they noticed was that some kids were more bursty than others. And she, I, I loved how uh, Stephanie just gave the analogy of, of emails. You know, we've all been at this conference and may, perhaps some of us are not checking our emails uh, as much as others. And so you'll get a burst of emails and then you've got to try to sort through all of those. And sometimes it's, it's really difficult to sort through a high number of emails. And, and sometimes it's better if those are spaced more evenly over time. And so, you know, you might have bursts of episodes of crying or bursts of episodes of vocalization. And that's kind of the analogy that she made, which, which um, was, was representative of what she's trying to demonstrate here. And someone went on in the audience to say, yes, you know, when we get those bursts of emails, we too feel like crying. Okay, so they conducted 13 school day Lena recordings over 10 months in these uh, early intervention childhood 
classrooms for late talking infants. So these are kids who are already at li- at risk for uh, DLD. And so they quantified the temporal structure of their vocalizations. And then they also um, um, gave the parents the MacArthur-based communicative development inventories. And what they found, and so what they found was that there was a very strong negative association with cry burstiness. So the more the child cried, the lower his vocabulary score on the MCDI. They also noted when they were compared to previous studies that there was a higher burstiness in these preschool classrooms than in the home. And again, like I said, that this burstiness had a negative relationship with the language. So again, if we think of uh, of our emails, you know, we can handle the amount of emails for the most part uh, when we get them spread out throughout the day, throughout the week. But when we get these bursts of emails, you know, all hell breaks loose and it's very difficult to manage. So that's kind of what's stuck with me is that perhaps it's what she called the Goldilocks effect. Not too much, not too little, just right. So um, if, you know, in the previous studies where they did this in the home, maybe had the parents been too bursty, we would have seen a different effect. Um, so, you know, if there's if there's these high clusters of um, parental input, maybe uh, we would have seen something different with the kids. But in this case, we were just looking at the children's own output, so their own cries, their own vocalization, um, and, and this is what was uh, the result. So that's about the, the summary of those three oral uh, talks. And then Susan Ellis Weismer came back and gave her closing remarks, which made my job a whole lot easier because she summarized the three days very well for me. She said, you know, we started with language sample analysis and uh, it's just, it's not our grandma's sample analysis anymore. There's all these different databases. There's tons of different softwares and I've named a few to pull from these databases and we can get so much information from these. Um, And then we heard uh, Dr. Landing and she talked about uh, genes and she really, you know, was attempting to trace language, oral language and reading from genes to the neural basis onto behavior. I mean, this is a huge task, um, but we've got the technology. It'll take a lot of research for the molecular genetics piece to be able to do that on a scale that is appropriate for imaging. But um, here we're looking at a lot of associations, a lot of correlations. Then we have Kate Nation, who's trying to go beyond you know, those associations and looking at causality. Um, we learned a lot about what Kate Nation uh, was not saying. You know, So she did say that Um, once the kids have the basics, then experience is important. So we really have to teach those kids the basics. Um, Kate also looked at, um, you know, what are kids getting from all of this input that they're getting from reading from this huge database that she was talking about. And then we're all, she's also looking at the kids production to, to see what's, what's going on here. So again, not just association, but that causality. And then of course, she talked about the panel discussion on DLD and the conclusion was that we just don't agree. Uh, She stated that, you know, those from U.S. have earned the reputation of not wanting to go with the crowd, it seems. So um, there's a lot of interesting issues that were brought up. Um, You know, maybe we just need to agree to disagree. Um, So overall, you know, there were so many amazing posters, posters on Williams syndrome, Down syndrome, bilingualism, ADHD, DLD, 
uh, reading, writing, um, narratives. It just went on and on and on. So it was a very uh, diverse um, conference, a lot of interest. And then, you know, she says it's a, it's such an exciting time for for new researchers, especially there are new technologies. There's also an increased um, increased interactions with other disciplines. We're not, it's, it's not just speech and language and speech and language pathologists anymore. We've, we're able to collaborate with many different disciplines and the study of child language is extremely eclectic. And so, uh, you know, where we talk from burstiness, from from baby's cries to reading problems to genes to uh, gestures, so there's a big problem space to cover. So uh, she uh, Susan ended by saying, "If anybody can do it, this group can do it." So on that note, I need to just put my computer away, put my microphone away. I hope that this was helpful. I hope that it'll encourage you if you were not able to come to SRCLD 2019, that you will consider coming next year. Uh, I certainly was very impressed. It is a, a you know relatively small group of researchers. There were some clinicians in the crowd. Michelle um, did talk to a clinician today. Um, so if you're a clinician, come. Researchers obviously come uh, and spread the word, you know, tell them to listen to this podcast if it's something that may be of interest to them and uh, see you next year.